Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 this evening, and uh, we'll get jumped in. Uh, we have studied for the past few weeks. We examined our saved life, and we examined our separated life. We have examined our submissive life, and believe it or not, we made it through last week. Amen? That submission is not a popular topic, but it's a biblical topic. Amen? But tonight I want us to take a few moments and to look at our suffering life. We cannot divorce the idea of suffering from the Christian life. If we do, we're going to be sorely disappointed. I know you'd find some on TV that tell you that the moment that you get saved, you're going to have a big old house and a nice car and never have any troubles. And there will always be folks on TV saying that. Paul said about those people that they they speak of their own and what they know. And uh, that's the life that they live, and so they want to talk about it. But that is sadly not the experience of most Bible-believing Christians. But Peter says a word about the suffering that they that live godly in Christ Jesus will experience and will encounter. Let's begin reading in chapter number 3. And uh, I'll tell you what, let's just read a few verses here, about three, four verses, and then we'll pray and jump on in. Let's begin down at verse number 14. Peter says, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better... If the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and thank you for your word. Bless it and use it. Hearts of your children tonight, Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Peter has been talking about suffering as uh, a part of our public and social experience. But he is going to now sort of change gears and give us a, a dissertation, as it were, upon suffering in the life of the believer. Now, if you live for Christ, you will experience persecution and suffering. And the people to which he is writing these uh, two letters are enduring and experiencing extreme persecution. Nero is upon the throne of Rome and the throne of the world, as it were, with the Roman Empire and their dominance. And Nero initiated the first of ten consecutive persecutions that the early church would go through and would experience. Uh, after uh, Domitian, I think I'm saying that right, I might have, you know, I don't know my, my ancient Roman, I don't even know any, any you know, contemporary Romans, you know, but uh, if I'm getting that right, or Diocletian, or Domitian, or Dalmatian, or whatever it is, when the tenth person came along, after that emperor, Constantine, of course, came to the throne, he declared the whole world Christian. Let me say this, that uh, prosperity has hurt the church more than persecution ever did. And once that the church was married to the state, then all of a sudden, you know, before you had the world, or the church inside the world. And in that situation, they grew and they flourished. After Constantine, you had the world inside the church, and it began to corrupt and eat away as a cancer and a canker. Uh, and, of course, we know there, there's no shortage of historical evidence of the atrocities that the Roman Catholic Church has uh, has inflicted upon true Bible-believing Christians. But suffice it to say that they are experiencing very real persecution 
Nero came up with all sorts of sordid and twisted ways to persecute Christians. One of his uh, most uh, famous and one of his favorite was that he would uh, take Christians and he would uh, bathe them in wax and, and pitch and all sorts of flammable materials and he would uh, put them up upon pikes and he would line his gardens with them and they would set these Christians on fire. He would hold lavish and big parties and entertaining galas uh, that were lit by the the martyr flames of Christians. And so that's the sort of thing these believers are experiencing. And Peter acknowledges that, and he approaches it from a biblical standpoint. Now let me say this. It's important to know how to approach things. There's a lot of things we can't avoid, but we can approach. And we can approach them in a biblical way. And suffering is one of those things. We're not going to avoid it altogether, but we can approach it in the right way. And he lists basically three things. In verse number 14, he says, We are to suffer... Boldly, He says, but and if ye suffer for righteousness sake. In other words, because you're living for God and because you love God, he says, happy are ye. Now that seems foreign to us, but that's what the word of God says. And Peter is a man that is not speaking from an empty well of experience. Peter has had his share of suffering. Uh, we're reminded when Herod locked him up in prison in Acts chapter 12. And what did he do? Did he wrench his hands? Did he weep? Did he cry? Did he lose his faith? No, he laid down and went to sleep. <laughs> That's the kind of confidence that Peter had. That was the boldness that he had. When the Sanhedrin took him and James and John and beat them because they were preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Bible says that they that they uh, were escaped out of the prison, that the angel let them out of the prison, said, go back into the temple, start preaching. They said, all right, we'll do that. And next thing the Sanhedrin knows, they're prisoners that should be in chains or in the synagogue preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they took him and they beat him. They would have killed him if it hadn't been for a man named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was not necessarily a godly man, but he was a, a good politician. And he said, we ought just let this thing alone. If it's of God, then we don't want to be against it. And if it's not, it'll peter out on its own. And so Gamaliel says, you ought to let him go. And the Sanhedrin takes, gives each of them 39 stripes and uh, sends them on their way. And the Bible says that when they left, that they went rejoicing, counting it glorious that they were able to suffer persecution for Lord Jesus Christ. So when Peter says this, this is not outside his wheelhouse. He is speaking of something he has experienced. And he, he notes three things. He says that we can suffer boldly because of the right reason. He says for righteousness sake. Now, uh, Shakespeare once said that, you know, that, that conscience makes cowards of every man. And when you've got a, a guilty conscience, it's hard to suffer in a bold way. But when you know that you've been living for God and you're suffering for your testimony, then you know you're suffering for the right reason. And he gives the right reaction. Happier you. Produces joy in our lives. Now, let me say that that is a supernatural thing. That's not to say that there are not plenty of reasons that we should be happy when we suffer. But that's not what Peter says. He doesn't say happy ye should be. He said happy are ye. The Lord gives us a song in the midst of that persecution and that darkness. That's a promise of God. We see it exemplified in the life of Paul and Silas. When they locked him up, what did they do? They sang praises and they prayed and they rejoiced and they gave God glory because of the suffering they were going through and God had given them a song in their darkest night. So he denotes the right reaction and then he denotes the, the right resolve. He says this, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Now he's going to expound upon that as we go through this, so I won't say a word about it yet, but but suffice it to say that when we endure persecution, we don't have anything to fear. The God of all creation, the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God is interested and is watching the suffering we are going through. 
We never have to worry that something's going to happen behind God's back because nothing happens behind the back of an omnipresent God. So he denotes we're to suffer boldly, and then he says we're to suffer believingly. He says in verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ye ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And I wish I could say a lot about this because it's interesting. This is a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, during the, the reign of King Ahaz. And King Ahaz, he was fearful because the, the Syrians had made a pact with the, the northern ten tribes of Israel, and he was afraid of them. And so what he did was he, he went and he made an alliance with uh, Assyria. Not Syria, but Assyria. Syria was a fearful nation, but Assyria was a world empire. And there was probably no more bloody or brutal of a world empire than the Assyrians were. Uh, and you, you can study, you can take time to do that, but that's, they, that was where Nineveh was, and that's where Jonah had to go, and, and he didn't, you know, he didn't want to see God save them people. And so, you know, they basically, Ahaz had jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. And Isaiah comes to him, and he basically says this, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and fear Him. What he's saying is, Ahaz, you're scared of everything, but who you ought to be fearful of, is the God of all the earth. You ought to be fearful of Him, the Lord God of heaven. In other words, if if we're serving the Lord God, if we have a godly reverential fear of Him, if He is who we are looking to, then why would we ever fear man? I mean, if 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 God be for us, <laughs> then who can be against? That's what Paul said. He said, what should we say to these things? He goes through eight chapters of, of theological exposition. He Tells everything that God's done. He says, what do we say to these things? What is the result of these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? John said it in this way, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He denotes the Lord that should be enthroned in our hearts, but then he denotes the word that should be enthroned in our minds. You know, a lot of times the persecution that we experience is not necessarily someone coming up and hitting us in the jaw, and you may have experienced that, but uh, in the times that I've pastored, I've, I'll be honest about this. I've never had anybody physically assault me because I was witnessing. Maybe I need to witness better. I don't know, but I've never experienced that. Uh, and I'm sure there's been plenty that have wanted to, but nobody's took the swing. But uh, I have had people that have challenged what I believe. I have had people that have said, you know, wh- why do you go in for all that Christianity, all that foolishness? Well, Peter says this, that in those situations we need to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In other words, we need to always stand ready to tell somebody what God has done in our heart and life. I understand this is where we get our, our English word apologetics from, the Greek word, uh, but, but I don't really think Peter is dealing with expounding doctrinal themes. I think in the context of what he's saying, he's saying, hey, when folks withstand you, when folks mock you, when folks scorn you, and people undoubtedly will say, what's wrong with you? Be always ready to tell them what's right with you. (laughs) Be ready to tell them what was wrong that God made right. Be always ready to give that answer. And then he says in verses 16 and 17, we're not only to suffer boldly and believingly, but he says we're to suffer blamelessly. He says in verse 16 that our conscience has to be right. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed, uh, (coughs) excuse me, falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. I wonder this. If someone, if if we, if somebody told us, hey, there's a rumor going around on you, I wonder if our first thought would be, I wonder if it's true. I wonder if it's true. I remember when I first started pastoring, and I don't have time really to, to wax anecdotal, 
But this, uh, but, but when I first started pastoring, you know, there was a few little room, nothing big. I, I didn't endure and experience a lot of that, but there was a few little rumors going around this, that, and the other. And I remember one time that, uh, that Brother Larry came to me and said, well, the rumor mill's been going around. I said, has it? I said, won't you enlighten me? I'm not part of that rumor mill. You know, and I don't mean that critically, Brother Larry. I just mean nobody ever, you know, nobody tells the pastor, you know. And uh, he said, well, there's a woman. He gave me her name. I'd never met this individual in my entire life. I've ne- To this day, I've never met this woman. Uh, she was a member from years and years back. I don't even know how she knew really me other than to know that I had come here to pastor. But she said this, he said, this woman says that she has a signed document from you, signed document, stating that if any women try to come to church in a pair of pants, you'll tell them they have to leave. Now, let me say a few things about that. <laughs> let me say one thing. First off, I didn't have to worry about that because no such document exists. <laughs> but let me say number two, one thing that lady didn't realize, she had never seen my handwriting because my handwriting is not easy to forge. You know why? It's not beautiful. It's not eloquent. It's chicken scratch. That's what it is. I literally have the worst handwriting of anybody you've ever met. In, in Other than doctors, I have the worst handwriting of anybody that you've ever met. You know, that that didn't worry me. That didn't concern me. I didn't run around going, oh, man, I wonder if she's going to show up. You know why? She'd look like a fool if she had. Because there ain't no such document that exists. Now, I'm not saying my conscience is clear of everything. I'm not saying that I am some kind of, of pinnacle and example of, of having a good conscience. But I am saying this. In that situation, when someone sought to tell a lie on me, I didn't have to worry about whether that was true or not. A good conscience enabled me in that situation to be able to be bold and to be able to stand firm because I knew I hadn't done anything wrong. That's how we need to, to face persecution. I'm not saying that I'm the example, but I'm saying that is an example. That is an anecdotal experience. And certainly, I wonder if we would worry, uh, you know, if they're going to tell something on us because there's plenty to tell on us. Well, that hinders us when we suffer persecution. You say, but preacher, I've made a lot of mistakes in the past. Well... Peter had made a lot of mistakes in the past. Paul had made a lot of mistakes in the past. You know what they could say? They could say, hey, listen, that may be true, but that's not who I am now. That's under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've already confessed, forsook that. And those things don't have to stalk us because they're under the blood. But when we have hidden things, skeletons in our closet, it impedes us from suffering in a bold way. And then he denotes this, that, we're to, that not only should our conscience be right, but our conduct should be right. He says this, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. In other words, you're going to suffer, but suffer for the right things. Your conduct needs to be right. We ought to be, listen, we're never going to be totally without blame, but we can live above reproach. You know, that's what Paul talked about when he talked about us touching the law, uh, the righteousness which is in the law. He said blameless. He said concerning, uh, you know, zeal persecuting the church. What he was saying was this. When he said blameless, he wasn't saying I didn't offend God's law. What he was saying is this. Amongst that group in the Sanhedrin, there was nobody that could have pointed a finger at Paul because of the way that I was living. Now, he mentions that those things are but dung, and he says I've lost those things, but he's speaking of his old life. But it does give us an example of what it means to live above reproach. It doesn't mean that we're sinless, but what it means is there's nobody that's going to sneak up and say, guess what I saw them doing. We need to live in a blameless way. So we see suffering experience. Then we see suffering exemplified. And he begins to speak about Christ. He said, for Christ also. Now that tells us it's an example. He's saying, I've been talking about this, but now I want to point towards Christ. And he shows Christ's suffering was redemptive in his purpose. See, he says, for Christ also hath once suffered 
for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now, let me say that we could spend hours giving a theological and doctrinal explanation of this passage. My only concern is giving you the context tonight. You can dig in and, and look at that for uh, for a later time. But let me say that the thing that he is pointing to is that there was purpose in Christ's suffering. He suffered one time for the sins, why? The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. There was a purpose in his suffering. He didn't suffer needlessly. There was a purpose in it. Why do we know that was so? Well, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because he was suffering in the will of God. It was God's will that he should go through that. He said this, you know, they came to him, they said, you know, why don't you just escape all this? Why don't you run from all this? And he said, you know, why should I fear? He said, you know, why should I pray and ask God to deliver me from this hour? He said, for this hour came I into the world. In other words, this is why I'm here. I came for this purpose, and I can face the cross in full confidence and commit myself unto a faithful creator, knowing that I am in the will of God. Now, that is not just unique to him because he's the Son of God. Now, I understand we can't suffer exactly like he did or with exactly the same results, but we can live in the will of God and have confidence that our suffering is because we are in the will of God or that the will of God has led us to that place. He notes that it was redemptive in its purpose. He notes that it was remarkable in its perspective. He says in verse number 19, By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing. I like that. That tells me that God's got a little bit of hillbilly in him. Amen. While the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Whew! Amen? I, I could spend days. <laughs> if, I, if I could have spent hours a moment ago, I could spend days here. You say, preacher, how are we going to get through all that? Well, let's just break it down. Uh, notice a few things. Notice first off the truth that he gives. When Christ died, when he died upon the cross, through that experience, says being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the Spirit, while he died during that three-day period, the Bible says he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, this is a unique terminology when it says prison. There's about four different words that denote the abode of those that are dead or, or the abode of those that that uh, are not in heaven but are dead. I mean, there, there's the there's the word Gehenna, or, uh, you know, Hinnom speaks of the valley of Gehenna there in uh, Jerusalem, bordered between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. That was sort of the trash heap of that day, and it had been a place where Solomon had set up worship uh, to the god Moloch, and they would cause their children to pass through the fire, and uh, Josiah went and defiled that place so they couldn't do that any longer, and it sort of turned into a trash heap. Can I give you an example? This is going to seem silly, but everybody, I live out in the country, okay? I, I, and, and I mean, I know there's people who live more in the country than me, but I live in the bona fide country. And uh, when you live out in the country, you've got a few valleys of Gehenna that are out in your neighborhood. You look down in there and you see hot water heaters, you see couches, uh, you know, you see some old bikes, you see some old, and it's become a place where everybody just dumps everything. You know, whoever owns the property don't care, and everybody just dumps everything. Well, that's sort of how the Valley of Gehenna was. There was a perpetual fire burning. They put dead bodies down there. And this was the descriptive word that Christ used to speak about hell. 
It was had a, had a great impact in the mind of, of Jewish people because they knew that was a place of eternal fire, constant torment. It was a place where deadness lived. And then there was the word Hades. Hades denotes uh, the idea of the abode or the state of the dead. Sometimes Hades does reflect the idea of hell. But if we're being scripturally honest, Hades is equivalent with the Old Testament Hebrew word of Sheol. And there's times that Sheol references hell in its proper sense, in the classical sense. There's times that Sheol also represents the, the, the dead abode or the dead place or the dead situation and state of those that knew the Lord. It's a generic term. It's not the grave in the sense of the actual hole that they put a body in, but a grave in the sense of the state of the dead. There's another word. It's the word where we get our term abyss. And uh, that's a unique, you ought to study it sometime. There's only a few times it's found in Scripture. Uh, but it, it denotes the place that the locusts are going to come out of in the book of Revelation and, and where Apollyon or Abaddon, the king of those locusts, is going to ascend from. It's the place where uh, the book of Revelation tells us that the uh, Antichrist, after he has died and supernaturally rose from the grave by the power of Satan, he's described as coming from that place. There's an interesting parallel, and I'll leave it to you to study it out. As he tries to portray himself as the Antichrist, he had been alive, and then he died and was satanically risen from the dead, and now he calls himself the the beast that's from the the bottomless pit, from the abyss, and that's the place where Satan is going to be interred during the Millennial Kingdom. But then there's this fourth word. It appears only here, and it's the word Tartarus. Uh, it is a unique word that that only describes this current situation, and we could study it out. Can I just give you an answer, though? Would that be okay? I don't normally like to do that, but let me just give you an answer. Scripture seems to relate that this is the abode of fallen angels. This is the place where fallen angels are imprisoned until the time that they'll be cast into the lake of fire. The Bible says that Jesus went and preached in that place. A lot of people say he preached the gospel in that place because of another passage later on in First Peter. But there's two different words that denote preaching. One is the term evangelize, where we get our term evangelize. That denotes the proclamation of good news, but that's not the word that's used here. Probably what happened was this. When Christ died during that three-day period, and by the way, there's scriptural evidence to suggest he visited all four of those various places. He went and he preached and he made a proclamation of his victory. We talked a little bit about it on Sunday. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that he spoiled principalities and powers, made an open show over them and triumphed through his death. Whenever he was uh, in that three-day period, we believe that he went down to this place and gave proof positive to these fallen angels that had already been part of a conspiracy to try to thwart God's redemptive plan, that he had had died in man's place, and that he, who was, by the way, not only God, but also man, that he had triumphed over Satan, and he made an open show over him. Now, you say, what does that have to do with anything? Because it's a type. It is a picture that, well, let me say this. That experience is not a type, but it, it relates to us a truth that is portrayed in type. These angels were from the days of Noah, and you can turn back Genesis 6 in your own time and look at that. But uh, he's hearkening back to the days of Noah because he's going to show this, that these wicked individuals have been triumphed over and that they are now awaiting punishment. But Noah and the, the eight souls, including Noah, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, that they were preserved through that experience, that God has protected them and has delivered them 
And what an encouragement that is to you and I to know that though they lived through that wicked time and suffered persecution at the hands of a wicked world, that right now Noah is in the heavens and in the glories and these angels are in prison and they've been proved to be defeated and they're awaiting their judgment one day in the lake of fire. You say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, if you're suffering, you might find that to be very encouraging. If you was facing the the persecution of Nero, you might find that to be very encouraging to know that though there may be a wicked man on the throne and he may be having his day, that his is just a mark in the sand. And one day the tidal wave of God's judgment is going to wash up from the oceans of eternity and wash away all of those things. They knew that Nero was going to get his, but that God would preserve them. I want you to notice the next few verses, and we've spent all of our time there. Let me Well, let me do say this, because it's a contentious point. He says this in verse 21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. And, you know, God knew folks would confuse that. When he said baptism doth save us, he knew there would be some knucklehead somewhere that would say, Okay, all I have to do to be saved is just be baptized. And so God puts a little parenthetical uh, you know, warning, a little disclaimer on it, when Peter says this, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of good conscience toward God. He's saying baptism is a picture of this same truth, that the old man that had all of his, all of his life invested in this world, that old man, he has been put to death. And baptism is a picture of that, and he has been raised. You ever think about baptism? You're placed in that water. Listen, you don't go into that water. You're placed in that water. And then, have you ever noticed this? I've done this time or two. I've been baptizing folks. Because once you're in that position, you can't bring yourself up. The arm of another has to lift you out of that water. Boy, isn't that what God did for us? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. That arm of God lifted us up out to walk in newness of life. See, it's a picture. It's a picture. And what Peter is saying is that, that, that the Christ, we've been crucified with him, we've been raised to walk in newness of life, and that as God has done that, the old man, the one that's, that, that is, is faltering and failing under the persecution, he's dead anyway, but the new man walks in new life that can never be conquered. That's what Peter's talking about here. And he goes on, he describes God's sovereign power who's gone into heaven, speaking of Christ and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. You say, why did he say that? Well, because there was a fellow running around like he owned the world. Peter says, don't ever forget that uh, he may be running the world, but God's running the universe. And all these principalities and powers are subject unto him. Then he denotes suffering is to be expected. He says in verse number 1 of chapter 4, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, uh, he says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. He says this, that you ought to get ready for persecution. You ought to get ready for suffering, but you can face it victoriously, just as Christ did, uh, just as there was purpose in what Christ did. He suffered, but uh, for us, when we suffer, uh, it... it it quelches, it, it, it buffets, it subdues the flesh, and uh, it causes us to not lean upon the flesh. And I found this to be true. Nobody ever goes through godly suffering and lives in sin. Never met anybody that was living a life of sin and was being persecuted for being a Christian. Uh, if you think you're being persecuted for being a Christian, but you're living in, in open, unconfessed sin, I mean, God's made this known to you and you refuse to repent of it, I'm sorry, you're not living in persecution. 
Because though that they that suffer in the flesh have ceased from sin. Don't don't act like you're a real martyr if you're living with sin in your life, unconfessed sin in your life, because you're not. Because those that suffer in the flesh, they've ceased from sin. Not to say that they are never going to mess up or never going to sin, but they're not going to live a lifestyle of sin. Then he says we can not only face it victoriously, but we can fight it victoriously, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. In other words, God is doing this to purge us and to change us. Now, I'm going to have to hot-foot it. I hope that's okay. We spent a little too much time in Tartarus, and we're going to have to hot-foot it through. So I'm going to jump through this very quickly. In verses 3 through 6, we see suffering explained. In other words, why do we suffer? And he shows, first off, man's depravity. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. You know what he's basically saying? He's saying God's done with that, and you ought to be done with it too. He may have allowed you to live in that ignorance for a little while, but guess what? Now you're saved. Now that needs to be done away with. And so part of God's process for that is he allows us to suffer. And we put those things away. Well, why? Look at man's distortion. Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. You know, you, you have somebody every once in a while, they'll want to get saved, but they'll be worried what their friends are going to think. They'll be worried about getting rid of their old friends. Uh, you say, what do I say to them? You just tell them this. If they get saved and live for God, they won't have to quit their friends. Their friends will quit them. Their friends will quit them. And basically what Peter's saying is part of this suffering process is God is perfecting and purifying you. He's purging out wickedness from your life. One of the ways that he does that is when you start living different, the world ain't going to have no time for you. He says in verses 5 and 6, we see man's depravity and distortions, but we see man's doom. He says, and this, by the way, this is speaking of those evildoers. He says, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Now, what he, what is he saying about that? He's saying that crowd that's persecuting you, they're going to have to give an account to God one day. That crowd that has turned their back on you, they're going to have to give an account to God one day. God is ready. He gives a word about the judge. The judge is ready. He's always standing ready at hand. You know, sometimes we feel like God is a little slow in exacting revenge, don't we? Sometimes somebody's wronged us and we think, why don't God just hurry up and give them theirs? You understand that God is always ready to judge the quick and the dead. I understand there is a judgment seat of Christ. I understand there is a great white throne judgment. But inasmuch as judgment is enacted on this earth and is, is measured out on this earth, you understand that God is always ready to do it, but sometimes there are things that are withholding his hand. Sometimes he is working in that individual's heart and life, but other times he's working in our heart and life. And our faith is being tested whether we really trust that we have a just God, that he will deal with them in righteousness. He gives a word about the judge, but he says a word about the judgment. He says, for this cause was the gospel preached also, to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in spirit. There's a lot of mystery shrouds this verse, but I don't think there's any reason to if we look at context. Remember, Nero is killing Christians left and right. The first, For the first time under the Roman Empire, under Nero, uh, persecution of Christians became the, the legal standpoint, the legal position of the state of Rome. Before Nero, they weren't necessarily treated kindly, but when Nero came into power, it became the law to persecute and to kill Christians. Many of these Christians have died a martyr's death. And Peter says this, that one of these days God is going to judge all these individuals. And it would be far better that they be judged by men now, judged according to the flesh now, and be put to death, 
but rather be judged righteously in God's eyes than for the opposite to be true. In other words, let's just say it this way. You'll, you'll be far better off being scorned by man, but being praised by God, than you ever will be to be accepted by man, but to be repudiated by God. That's what he's saying. He's saying the gospel was preached unto them. Why? To save their soul. Not to save their flesh. To save their soul. Their flesh may be perishing, but they're living eternally in the presence of God. Right now, you may be tormented over their loss, but right now, they're not tormented. They're in the very presence of God. Could you imagine what it must have been to go from Nero's garden to God's garden? I was listening to old Billy Kelly sing that old song that just arose will do. You remember that? Billy Kelly, he'd sing that song, talk about, I'm about to be in a plentiful garden, so just a rose will do. Don't need a whole bunch, don't need much at my funeral, just a rose will do, because I'm right now in the presence of God's beautiful garden. Could you imagine what it must have been like? Listen, before the flames ever extinguished from their martyred bodies, they were in the conscious presence and bliss of God's glory. Hey, it may look rough down here, but if you see it the way God sees it, it wouldn't look so rough. So he denotes the the suffering, and he sort of explains what God is doing and why we experience that. But he expounds a little bit on what God is doing. We notice suffering exploited. Look at verse number 7. And he basically gives us three things that suffering should produce in us. Look at verse number 7. He says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. He says this, it should make us more prayerful. More prayerful. I, I'm interested by the way he says that, watch unto prayer. Don't you know he must thought back to the night in the garden when he didn't watch unto prayer? You know, before the cross, he didn't watch unto prayer. But now after the cross, and as he anticipates his own cross, because you remember, Christ told him he was going to be crucified. As he anticipates his own cross, he don't find any problem getting into the prayer closet. He knows the end of all things is at hand. Most uh, Well, I would say that, that all except for Peter of the apostles believed and anticipated the, the, the Lord to return in their lifetime. All of them did. And the only reason that Peter did not is because the Lord had already told him that, he, that his death was appointed, that he was going to die. But the rest of them, they all spoke that way. Uh, Paul said, we, we wait for the appearing of his dear son. I mean, they, they all anticipated the Lord appearing before they would leave this world. But Peter, with having this this interesting perspective of knowing he's going to die, knowing he will meet not only a death, but a martyr's death, he says, you know what, it's made me more prayerful. It's caused me to spend my time down here praying for those that are around me, praying to have an open door. He says it should make us more prayerful. Look at verse number 8. He says this, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. He says it ought to make us more practical. More practical. More practical. Is it starting to do that? Let me do this right here. You know I anticipated that. I ain't a prophet, but I don't trust modern electronics. That's the truth. Ooh, yeah. We're really back in business now, ain't we? Peter says it should make us more prayerful. I'm saying that for the recording in case it missed it. It should make us more prayerful. And no doubt Peter knew that uh, prayerfulness was an important thing. But he says it should make us more practical. In other words, we ought to get busy. Can I read it to you this way and just give a little commentary, a little note? He says this, above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Quit fighting with each other. 
because we don't have much time. We don't have much time. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Quit nitpicking each other because we don't have much time. He says use hospitality one to another without grudging. He says you ought to share with each other because we don't have much time. In other words, you ought not get so attached to the money in your bank or to the food in your pantry because it might be that we leave this world before this night is even up. Then he says this, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. He says, hey, you ought to get busy because we don't have much time. God has entrusted us with some things. We are stewards of the grace of God, and we may not have much time left. Listen, if you're going to give somebody the gospel, you better hurry because we may not have much time left. If you're going to get serious about being faithful to God's house, you better start doing it because we may not have too many church services left. You're going to get serious about your giving and tithing. You better get to it because you may, the Lord, the trumpet may sound. We may leave this world. And God forbid that we should leave this world with a big old full bank account and there to be people, missionaries that need uh, supplies and need provision and, and things that could be purchased for the things of God. Peter's saying you better get busy. It ought to make you more practical. This thing shouldn't be theoretical. It ought to be practical. We need to get busy. And then in verse 11, he says it should make us more perceptive. It says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He says, we ought to get real serious about what we believe about the Word of God and about how we live the Word of God. He says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. You know, I, I think about that a lot because I'm a pastor. And I know a lot of pastors that spend all their time chasing headlines. Uh, let me tell you, that may, maybe a thousand years ago we had time to preach about every little bit of nonsense out here. But we better get focused, because I believe with my heart of hearts, we're living in the generation that will see Christ return. Now, I'm not saying we need to throw away all, all of uh, you know our doctrine. You know me well enough to know I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying there's not a place for preaching on specifics and details. We're pretty detailed around here. But what I'm saying is this. You know, when I sat down, when, I, when God called me to preach and when God called me to pastor this church, I sat down and I, I did the math. If I was to pastor... For 60 years. Most pastors don't pastor that long. But if I was to pastor for 60 years and preach every single week in the pulpit that God placed me in, I, I reckoned up about 3,000 Sundays that I'd get in my life. That don't seem like that much when you start really thinking about it. 3,000 sermons. God helped me that I would not waste them with a bunch of nonsense. Because only 3,000 Sundays is God. I mean, and that's if I get to preach all of them. That's if that's if I pastor for 60 years. Anything could happen. I mean, God may take me out of this world before I get to climb in the pulpit again. God forbid that I should waste that time preaching on a bunch of pop psychology and nonsense. There's room for nothing but the Word of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. Get busy serving God. Because the rapture may take us out of here, or persecution may take us out of here, or the sovereign will of God administered through sickness or through an accident, anything could take us out of here. We need to get busy because we don't have much time left. We see suffering exploited. We see suffering exalted. Look what it says in the next few verses. He says this in verse number 12. Beloved, I like that, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which, notice this next phrase, which is 
to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. We see a guaranteed experience of suffering. We are going, if we live for Christ, we are going to experience suffering. And he says, don't think that's weird. Don't think that's strange. Don't think that's odd. Now, there's a lot of TV preachers would think that's odd. And there's a lot of marginal Christians that would think that's odd. You know what a marginal Christian is? That's somebody that's a better Christian on Facebook than they are in real life. That's a marginal Christian. You know, uh, the, the, uh, there's a lot of them. They think it's strange. You know, they think it's strange. It's strange that we're experiencing this. Peter says, I don't think it's strange. I think it's a guaranteed experience. But he denotes it's a gladdening experience in verse 13. He says, but what do we do? Well, don't sit around scratching your head. Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. He denotes the partnership that we have. When we suffer, man, we're just tasting, just I mean a drop, just a morsel, just a crumb from the table of what Calvary was. There's nothing we're going to go through but what Christ went through more. And there's no suffering we experience if it is godly suffering, if it is righteous suffering, but what we are entering into the experience in a minute, microscopic way of what Christ knew. How many in this room would say, I want to know more about him? Anybody? I want to know, I want to know him better. Well, guess what? He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He suffered. And it might mean some suffering if you want to get to know him better. Then he denotes the prospect. But guess what? One of these days when his glory is revealed, we'll be glad. We'll have joy on that day. We won't regret a single, a single tear that we shed. We won't regret a single mile that we've walked if we've walked with the Lord. And then he denotes a glorifying experience. In verse number 14, he says, if you be reproached, for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Boy, he said it again. <laughs> he don't want us to miss it, does he? Happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. You know, as we consider that, we see the reproach of the godless is declared. They are reproaching. They are scorning. You know what the, you know what the world says? I, I remember one time politician, I think it was that that wrestler, used to be a wrestler. That ought to tell you something about modern politics, amen, that a man that put on tights for a living could, could win elected office. But I remember he got in the news, because that's all they're interested in. They just want to get in the news. He got in the news because he said that Christianity is a crutch. <laughs> that's what they think about it. They think it's a crutch. They think it's for the weak-minded. Let me tell you something, brother. It's not a crutch. It's the whole stretcher. It's the whole stretcher. Just call me weak, all right, because I was dead in my trespasses and sin. Go ahead, reproach Christian. Call it a crutch. But, hey, let me tell you something. I think it's glorious. There's always a crowd that will reproach the name of Christ. Let me tell you something. I hope that as long as Wall Ridge Baptist Church sits on this road, I hope there's at least always in this part of town a crowd that will give him glory, that will give him glory. He denotes the reproach of the godless, but the reflection of the glory demonstrated. Let me tell you, there, there, there is a certain amount of suffering that only, or a certain amount of glory that only suffering can purchase. It doesn't come any other way. And that's not to say that we ought to embrace uh, a false martyrdom, but it is to say this, that when we experience suffering, we ought to acknowledge that God's going to turn it to his glory. <laughs> I imagine that that's what the uh, New Testament church found out, you know. Because Nero, he was part of that crowd. I don't know if he ever wore tights, but he was part of that crowd. And, and uh, Nero, he looked at Christianity as weak, as anemic. 
But you know, his followers didn't start to think that. You know why? Because they began to see the glory on the face of those dying a martyr's death. They began to see the very glowing, glorious countenance of Jesus Christ reflected in the eyes of those that were meeting death without fear, without failing, without faltering. And you know what Rome began to say? They began to say, boy, I guess there's something to that Christianity. They don't die like the pagans do. <laughs> they, don't, they don't die like the heathens do. When they die, they die with a song. When they die, they die with rejoicing. And listen, they'd, rather than put a little pinch of salt on the altar of a pagan god, they'd rather meet death and do it with boldness. They began to see the glory of God shining in the face of those martyrs like Stephen of old, whose countenance shone as Christ stood from his throne in reverence and in godly pride for his servant that was dying in his place. And how did he meet it? He met it by saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They began to, you know, Paul saw something in that face. (laughs) Paul saw something. He stood there with the coats piled up around him. And he saw something. You know, he said that that because of that, he was exceedingly mad. It drove him crazy to think about the face of Stephen. And years after, he would speak about that event and the impact that it had made. In fact, the only light that ever eclipsed the, the light that shone in Stephen's face was the light that shone when he was on the road to Damascus. But even in his old age, he'd look back at what he had done in persecuting the church. And he'd thank God for the mercy that had been shown upon him because he was in ignorance. He never got away from the glory that shone from Stephen's face. Boy, I tell you, there's something to that. And it might be something to it when people begin to see God shining in our life, even when we're being persecuted, even when we're being lied about, even when we're being slandered about, even when they call us hate mongers, even when they call us narrow-minded and bigoted and, and rude and cruel and oppressive. It might be that when people look at us, they don't see that in our lives. You know what they see? They see tender-hearted people that love sinners that aren't judgmental in the sense of what the world defines judgmental. You know why? Because we're in the same mess we're in. We're just preaching them about a Savior that loves them just as they are and seeks to change them. Boy, I tell you, I could just sit there and preach for a while. Look at the next few verses. We see suffering examined, and we'll close with these thoughts. Look at verse number 15. Peter says this, but he says, all right, now, Peter's been in the glory. Let me tell you something. If you don't think the, the, the Bible character's gotten the glory, you just need to read your Bible again. Now, David danced before the Lord, am I right? He danced, but I know people don't like that, but it's in the Bible anyway. You know God left that in the Bible even knowing it upset a bunch of starch-shirted uh, Baptists. He just left it in anyway. It didn't bother him. And there were, uh, you know, and there was a crowd. His wife, she didn't like that either. He said, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> but uh, David danced before the Lord. You know what Paul said? He said, if we be beside ourselves, it is for your sakes. That's what Paul said. I know, listen, I know we ain't in First Peter right now, but you just stick with me. I feel the Holy Ghost, I believe, wants this said. Uh, Paul said, if we be beside ourselves, it is for your sakes. He, he said that, that when, when we do that, or no, 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 I'm sorry. He said, if we be sober, it is for your sake. But if we be beside ourselves, it is unto God. You know what he said? He said, I know that our worship upsets you, but we ain't worshiping for you anyway. We ain't worshiping for you anyway. <laughs> I know it may not be in vogue, but God is interested in it. And if he's interested in it, we're interested in it. It may upset you, but we ain't doing it for you anyway. We're doing it for the Lord. Let me tell you something. These writers, they got in the glory. And that's a real thing. If you don't think it's a real thing, brother, you need to find a new church. Amen? You need Bob Jones Sr. Bob Jones. Bob Jones Sr. You know what he said? He said everybody ought to get in the glory at least once. 
If you've never gotten the glory, if you've never just got beside you, I'm not talking about nonsense. I'm not talking about carnality. I'm talking about getting so consumed with God that you don't care what people think about your worship of Him. If you've never gotten to that place, you ought to try it just once. You may say, I'm not that kind. Let me tell you something. Everybody that's saved is that kind, whether they know it or not. Because they got the same Christianity, got the same Holy Ghost, they got the same salvation that every one of us do. Peter's been in the glory. You say, how do you know that? Well, listen to how he ended that. <laughs> Look what he said uh, back in verse number, uh, let's see, 11. He said, listen, uh, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's John's language. John picked that up in Revelation when he got in the glory. You can't tell me that's not a man that's rejoicing. And he says, all right, let's quiet down a little bit. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. He says this about suffering. He stops and he slows down. He examines it for a moment. And he asks this. He says, number one, is there a reason? Is there a specific reason in your life for why you are suffering? Uh, it would pay us, when we think we're a martyr, to stop and ask ourselves, why are we being persecuted? Number one, is it the result of culpable activity? He says, is it because we're a murderer or a miscreant or a malcontent or a meddler? Well, I know there, there ain't a lot that fall in that first three categories, but I know a lot of folks that ruffle feathers by meddling. I know a lot of folks that think they're a martyr when really they're just a busybody, as Peter calls them. You know, a lot of times that's why the world has such a problem with us. We stick our nose in worldly affairs where it don't even belong. What I'm about to say is not going to be popular, okay? So everybody take a deep breath and get ready. God didn't call us to be activists. He called us to be Christians. All the petitions in the world, that ain't what God, and I'm not, I'm not opposed to signing a petition. If you feel like that's what God wants you to do, by all means. But listen, all the letters, all the petitions, all the activism that we can do, that's not how things get done. Things get done through revival and through evangelizing. That's how things get done. You see it time and again. Listen, I mean, uh, the, the, <laughs> Paul and Silas didn't file a complaint on the Philippian jailer. Instead, they got in there and worshipped and rejoiced. And you know what? That jailer saw something in them he didn't have. That's how things get accomplished. If you're suffering, why are you suffering? Is it for one of these reasons that anybody would be mad? I've known lots of folks that they thought they was a martyr, and they described him. They'd say, well, preacher, you know, I said this to somebody, or I said that to somebody, and and they got mad at me. And Can you believe that? And I, and, and I lied. I said, man, really? But inside I was thinking, yeah, I can believe that. I'd probably hit you in the mouth if you said that to me. <laughs> I've met a lot of people like that, you know? That really it wasn't anything, but they were obnoxious. And they thought that they were a martyr because they were obnoxious. That's not of God. He says, don't suffer that way. Don't suffer that way. But if it's a result of Christian activity, verse number 16, he said, yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. In other words, if it's not because of those things, if you're really just loving folks, living for God, sharing the gospel, being a witness, being a testimony, and you suffer persecution, you can do that without shame. You can glorify God because of what you're going through. He asks if there is a specific reason for it. In other words, examine why it is happening. And then he asks, is there a special reason for it? He says in verses 17 and 18 that sometimes suffering is designed to cleanse the church. He says, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? In other words, he says, first off, you know, sometimes the reason the church endures suffering and endures persecution is because God's trying to clean house. 
let me tell you something. When things get tough, the Bible teaches us that folks start to scatter. Right? Part of the reason that our churches are packed with unregenerate, unsaved people is because Christians aren't being jailed. A lot of these, and it, you know, it gets discouraging sometimes. You see a lot of these churches, and buddy, they're packing out arenas, and they're doing it with carnality and worldliness, and you think, man, what's wrong with this? What? How is this happening? Well, you just wait. The second that the police start knocking on folks' door at 1 a.m., that crowd's going to get a lot smaller. I mean, when all we've got to do is get in the car and drive down and, and, you know, wave our hands and have a rock concert, it's easy to draw a crowd. But when we're having to sneak out and go under uh, under darkness, under threat of, of, of uh, persecution, of jail time, and of bodily harm, that crowd's going to get real thin. Listen, I, I mean, I know some folks won't even go to church when their favorite TV show is on. You, you can't tell me they're going to be at the house of God when there's a, a risk of the police coming in. Sometimes suffering is given to cleanse the church, but sometimes suffering is designed to warn the world. He says judgment first begins at the house of God. And if it begins at the house of God, if God is willing to clean his own house, then you're telling me he won't clean the world? And sometimes God, you remember this happened with Ananias and Sapphira. When they lied to the Holy Ghost, that's what Peter said, they lied to the Holy Ghost. There's, there's great danger in lying to the Holy Ghost. When they lied to the Holy Ghost, God struck them dead. The Bible says great fear went upon them all. That didn't hurt the church. The church increased. But those that were around, you know, they took notice of that. I guess God really does expect holiness, they said. And they took note of that. And the world will, no doubt. They'll look and they'll see. Truth is taught by way of example. If God would deal with us, he'll deal with them. But verse 18, truth is taught by way of extension. He says, and if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? In other words, there's a dual truth he's conveying here. One is this, that if, if God will judge us, then he'll judge them. But he goes a step further and says this, if God, if our judgment could be so severe, imagine how severe theirs could be. That's part of the design sometimes. God is trying to get the world's attention. Sometimes there's a special, distinct reason for it. Not just we brought it on ourselves, but sometimes God is doing something through this. But then notice there is a spiritual reason, or is there a spiritual reason for it? Look at verse 19. We'll read this, say a word, and be done. He says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. In other words, sometimes it's the result of ourselves. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes God is doing something in a body of people, and sometimes he's not. But sometimes he's doing something distinctly and exclusively in our lives. And what does it bring about? Number one, an undaunted commitment. He says, wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. In other words, you know what it causes? It causes us to draw closer to God. Closer to God. When there's real danger, you know, I, I found this to be true, and I, I've got a pastor friend. I, I was too young. I was 14 when the trade centers went down. Does that make anybody feel old? <laughs> That's what everybody says. I'm not trying to be ugly, but every time I say something like that, everybody says, well, I feel so old. So figured I'd ask, you know. I was 14 years old. It was my birthday. I turned 14 the day that the World Trade Center went down. I got a pastor friend in Maryville, though. He said that on that day that factories in Maryville were calling him, asking him to open the doors of his church so that folks could come in and pray. Maybe some of your pastors experienced something very similar to that or maybe that very thing. Uh, one thing about it, man, when things go sideways, folks get prayer on their mind. 
And that's not just true of unbelievers. That's true of believers, too. I know lots of folks that are that are foul-weather Christians. When everything's going well, man, they're gone. They're at the lake. They're at the golf course. They're, they're up at the mountains. But all of a sudden, they lose their job. Man, they're back in their pew. It Sometimes God is purging and drawing us closer. But we see not only an undoubted commitment or an undaunted commitment, but we see an undoubting confidence. And I won't say everything that, that we say in the notes about it, but you know what it does? It causes us to reconsider that our God is really a God we can trust. Not only does it force us to draw closer to Him, but it causes us to, to consider, to weigh the fact that He's a God we can trust. That's one of the ways that God does draw us closer. The, the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing, by the way, in well-doing, that's how they do it. They do it by continuing to live right as unto a faithful Creator. It's interesting that Peter should use that word creator. You know why? Because we think of it in the sense of the creation of the cosmos, of the world. But I think it denotes God's creative nature in general. Uh, You know how Paul described it? He said that, uh, I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That God, listen, God, if he has begun a good work in us, he'll finish that work. If he has created a good work, if he saved us, he's not going to throw us away. He is a faithful creator, and he'll always see to the needs of his creation. 